Greetings, troublemakers. Welcome to Trouble. My name is not important. It's now been 50 years since the riots of 1968, a decentralized series of explosive protests that broke out across multiple countries around the world and which to this day stand as a high watermark in the annals of revolutionary history. But no commemoration of this milestone is complete without acknowledging that 68 was, at the end of the day, a failed revolution. And just as it was a year of inspiring popular protest, it was also a year of intense political repression. In the United States, just as the civil rights and anti-war movements were at their peaks, three high-profile political assassinations occurred over a span of two months, claiming the lives of Martin Luther King Jr., Bobby Hutton, and Robert Kennedy. These killings helped to cement the shift from a largely non-violent and reformist civil rights movement to the more militant and revolutionary black power movement, which in turn would soon fall prey to the FBI's ruthless program of covert assassination and sabotage known as COINTELPRO. In Mexico, calls for an international boycott managed to successfully block apartheid South Africa's participation in the 1968 Summer Olympics, and a massive student uprising broke out which posed an existential challenge to the ruling PRI government of Gustavo Diaz Ordaz. The Mexican state's response to the students was swift and brutal. On October 2nd, just 10 days before the Olympic Games were set to begin, the Mexican army opened fire on 10,000 student protesters in the Plaza de las Tres Culturas in what became known as the Tlatelolco massacre. Between 300 and 400 people were killed and over 1,500 student organizers arrested in a wide-ranging crackdown by security forces that sent shockwaves throughout Mexican society that resonate to this very day. But while repression ultimately cut short the revolutionary promise of 1968, it could never extinguish the desire for freedom that was its initial spark. This torch has since been taken up by new generations of restless youth who have used their position as students to issue calls for a radical transformation of society. Over the next 30 minutes, we'll showcase contemporary examples of student struggles from Mexico, South Africa, and the United States, and speak with current and former student organizers as they share their experiences of taking over their campuses, disrupting the status quo, and making a whole lot of trouble. En este país, solo 4 de 10 de cada generación puede entrar a la universidad. No hay universidades públicas creadas ¿no? desde los 70 con la UAM, la Autónoma Metropolitana, y luego en el 2001 la Autónoma de la Ciudad de México. Ninguna con una capacidad de recibir a más de 5.000 estudiantes por año. ¿no? Entonces, es una élite. Y en este país, con todo el empobrecimiento, ¿no? con todo el despojo, ¿quién entra a la universidad? La demanda que hizo detonar el movimiento estudiantil fue el reglamento de pagos que se implementó en la UNAM. Nos pretendía establecer cuotas para poder estudiar en la universidad. Contemplaba el aumento de servicios educativos, por ejemplo, el estudio de idiomas, el uso de laboratorios, el uso de bibliotecas. Eso para todos los que participamos en ese movimiento significaba el inicio ya de la privatización de la universidad. Y después, ya una vez es que estalló el movimiento, 
movimiento, ya dentro de la organización de estudiantes que formamos, que fue el CGH, se agregaron otras cinco demandas. En cuanto sale la propuesta de modificación al reglamento, pues lo que va a suceder en muchas de las escuelas, no sé si en todas, fueron asambleas. ¿no? En muchos casos, o sea, cada escuela, como llegar y decir, ya vieron ¿no? que hay un reglamento, que hay no sé qué, y se empieza a discutir. La única opción que teníamos para tratar de frenar el aumento de las cuotas era parar la universidad. Aquí ya es donde empiezan a entrar las viejas corrientes que ya, ya existían en la UNAM y tenían una experiencia que, con la que no contábamos todos aquellos que no habíamos formado parte de esos grupos de activistas. Y con estas corrientes es que se empezó a formar ya la idea de estallar la huelga, la manera en que lo íbamos a hacer y se estableció una fecha. Y ahí el zapatismo creo que fue clave también. El Ejército Zapatista de Liberación Nacional, así la comandancia, hace un comunicado y dice que pide el apoyo a los zapatistas y a toda la gente que nos ha apoyado a que se apoye el movimiento. El día en que estallamos la huelga, que fue la noche del 19 de abril, más de la mitad de la población universitaria estábamos a favor de parar la universidad y estábamos aquí dispuestos a permanecer en las instalaciones para que no hubiera más clases y se iniciara la huelga. El 30 de abril en huelga, las islas de Ciudad Universitaria estaban a reventar de talleres, de niños y de huelistas. Primero que nada pasó por la criminalización absoluta. La campaña mediática era brutal, ¿no? o sea, sí era. Y no teníamos los recursos que ahora podemos tener, digamos, bueno, el Facebook, Twitter, o sea, que, que te permitía llegar a un grueso de la población. La forma de difundir lo que estaba pasando era irnos al metro, ir en una brigada, para mí era como de lo más chido, ¿no? de, de salir a informar por qué estábamos ahí. Y sobre todo para mí sí era un termómetro de cuánta la gente te apoyaba. Había un apoyo, pero ese apoyo también era pues moral, de palabra, de sí, estoy con ustedes. Nosotros tampoco no encontramos una pro propuesta de qué hacer, de qué manera podrían realmente ayudarnos y fortalecer el movimiento. Yo creo que sí pasó el movimiento por, por sí una ofensiva completa del Estado. Sí utilizaron todos los recursos como Estado mexicano para atacar al movimiento estudiantil. Hubo compañeros que fueron hasta desaparecidos. Y nueve meses después, la UNAM, con toda una institución, decide hacer una consulta. Y ponen a De La Fuente como rector y De La, de la Fuente aparece como un rector que quiere dialogar. Empieza él a organizar y a gestionar una consulta en donde él incluye estas propuestas para ser votadas por la comunidad universitaria. Se va a anular el Reglamento General de Pago, vamos a realizar un congreso y proponemos terminar con la huelga. De La Fuente hizo parecer esto como una propuesta sensata. El movimiento inició por las cuotas, les estoy proponiendo que las vamos a eliminar. El movimiento pide un congreso, yo les estoy proponiendo que lo vamos a realizar. ¿Qué más quieren? Y entonces viene finalmente el cierre ya de este movimiento maestro que hizo la rectoría y el gobierno, que fue invadir con golpeadores pagados la prepa número 3. Solo quedaban cinco compañeros ahí resistiendo y resguardando las, las instalaciones. Y esto resultó una provocación para el CGH, que en cuanto se entera a todos los compañeros que estábamos en el resto de las, de las instalaciones de la UNAM, nuestra reacción fue ir a rescatar la prepa 3. 
llegamos muchos miembros del CGH. Hubo un intercambio de golpes, de lanzamiento de objetos contra estas personas que estaban ahí invadiendo la, la preparatoria. Los medios recuperan estas escenas de violencia, lo muestran ante la población y viene el primer movimiento policíaco de la Policía Federal Preventiva, sin armas. Entra, detiene y en menos de 72 horas estamos en el reclusorio. Acusados de terrorismo, asociación delictuosa, sabotaje, daño en propiedad ajena, robo agravado, motín, ataques a las vías de comunicación. Entonces es una primera detención ¿no? muy violenta y que fue el inicio o la apertura a donde estamos ahora. En tanto a la violencia hacia las mujeres, por ejemplo, el tipo de, de forma en cómo se atacó, ¿no? o sea, una compañera con una fractura de pelvis, ¿no? por un toletazo. O sea, digamos que ahora es la práctica sistemática hacia los cuerpos de las mujeres en este tipo de tensión. Y en ese momento, De La Fuente pues, nos cita a un diálogo, pero ahora ya con sus condiciones. Lo van a nombrar a 10 representantes, nos vamos a ver en tal lugar, no va a haber radio, no va a haber televisión, no va a haber medios de comunicación, y lo que vamos a negociar es el fin de la huelga. Los representantes que acudieron a esta reunión no aceptaron ese trato. Ahí lo sabían bien, iban a estar reunidos los activistas más activos en el movimiento y lo que deciden hacer es, es enviar un grupo muy numeroso de policías sin armas y esto funcionó muy bien porque ante los medios de comunicación se usó la fuerza de una manera racional a un movimiento además rebelde, sin motivos y esto fue aceptado por la población de una manera bastante contundente. Finalmente el 6 de febrero ya en un operativo militar con helicópteros, tanques, toma todas las instalaciones ¿no? de la universidad. Esto no provocó ningún tipo de estallido, ninguna movilización, y pues así creo que fue como el gobierno de Cedillo, de La Fuente, resolvieron el conflicto con un costo muy bajo. The 1960s are often looked back on as a golden age of student activism in the United States, with Ground Zero being the Berkeley campus of the University of California. As the storied home of the free speech movement, the campaign of sit-ins and mass rallies that by 1965 had won students the right to hold explicitly political events on campus, UC Berkeley was an important point of convergence for the civil rights, feminist, environmentalist, and anti-war movements that eventually coalesced into the so-called New Left. As part of the larger University of California network, UC Berkeley is a publicly funded institution. For most of its existence, this meant that students didn't have to pay tuition fees. Beginning in the late 60s, however, that began to change as a growing popular resentment towards hippies and godless communists spurred a conservative voter backlash, which helped propel Ronald Reagan to the governorship of California. All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. One year after sending in the National Guard to violently crush Berkeley students in 1969, Reagan succeeded in imposing tuition fees across the nine campuses of the University of California. In the decades that have followed, tuition costs have shot up by nearly 10,000%. But despite the effects that these changes have had on the university's demographics, UC Berkeley continues to occupy an important role in American politics as a primary site of student radicalism. Four decades after Reagan sent in the army to crush dissent, students at UC Berkeley participated in a series of statewide university occupations carried out under the banner, Occupy Everything.
This is Berkeley on Telegraph. This is how we do it. Some of the motivating factors for the student movement of 2009 to 2010 really were unfortunately based on the budget cuts in the state of California to public higher education. Now this actually sprawled across all different sectors of the education community. So after the financial crisis in 2007-2008, a lot of states were forced to implement austerity programs, uh, cutting public spending and laying off state employees. Not only were student tuition fees suggested to be increased, but also there were forced faculty and staff furlough days. So this actually did help us ultimately in the movement because it affected so many different aspects of the campus community that we were able to bind together and work together. UC system in particular had a large budget deficit, and so administrators resorted to tuition hikes to make up for the budget shortfall. That was only half the story. Uh, as it was discovered later, the UC administration had resorted to taking out bonds for construction projects to generate revenue. And in this instance, student tuition was closely tied to the bond ratings of the UCs. Increasing student tuition was a signal to credit rating agencies that the UC could pay back their bonds and thus secure more funding. This ended up being one of the pivots for the student movement as a whole, the relationship between the university and financial capital, higher education, and Wall Street. So the story really does begin in early May where the proposed tuition fee increases were made by the UC Regents as well as the CSU trustees. Over the summer, of course, student organizing is quite difficult, but there were coalitions of students, staff, and faculty that had been formed in late spring that were in fact meeting and trying to gain momentum to prepare for the very beginning of the fall semester in 2009. There were a series of smaller actions and coordination among students at UC and Cal State campuses which pretty much set the tone for the months to come. Study-ins, sit-ins, and occupations of school spaces. We were influenced by the occupation, specifically at the new school, where the tactic of occupation itself was becoming popularized. Occupations were seen as a viable tactic and was a way to bypass the routines of marches and rallies. This action's in solidarity with, with occupations that have occurred so far at UC Davis, UCLA, UC Santa Cruz, SF State. Using the tactic of occupation really did mark a departure from the typical tactics uh, known and seen in the student movement. So the occupations were a major contrast to marches and rallies, which, you know, are pretty routine. Everyone gets together for a few hours, then they go home. The occupations, people could meet each other and have longer conversations. And more importantly, there was a continuous and visible presence of people that made the student movement feel more tangible. Not just a series of actions, but also a materially enduring place. It took on more of a direct action approach at trying to take space. This is something that allowed us to try to manifest what we were actually dreaming of as opposed to simply asking that the quote-unquote authorities that be give us what we want. This really gave us a, a huge motivation and showed the students that they had great power. We have a 32% fee increase that we want immediately repealed. But you know what? We want a whole lot more than that. We want public education that is free. So in mid-November, there was a three-day strike in response to the UC administrators increasing tuition by 
Uh, there was an occupation at UC Santa Cruz, while well, at UC Berkeley there was a march attended by well over several thousand people. There were also walkouts and sit-ins of various Cal States in the Bay Area. On November 19th, UC, SC, UC Davis, and UCLA occupied administrative buildings. And on November 20th, Wheeler Hall at UC Berkeley was occupied with clashes with police and other Cal States uh, had sit-ins. From that point forward, there was a series of smaller actions, uh, marches to the Chancellor's house, sit-ins, more occupations, happening at the UCs and other Cal States. During that time, there were a lot of networking amongst students and militants, and this was a period of time where a lot of the uh, students from different campuses were able to kind of coordinate and talk about what to do next. The students who were participating in the occupation movement faced repression from both the state and the university. University administrators were caught off guard by the occupations, and they seemed kind of unsure as to what to do. But as the movement continued, the UC administration resorted to calling in the police, both from on and off campus. Guys, they're at this door! And of course, this is trying to prevent students from participating in any student activities. Definitely the anarchists focus more on trying to bring the issues outside of just the university campuses. We were trying to relate this struggle now to problems and issues with capitalism and class struggle because it is entirely related. I watched Trouble, we gotta stop it. In the global north, the struggle against the colonial apartheid regime in so-called South Africa is often presented as a feel-good example of the merits of pursuing a patient strategy of non-violence and the effectiveness of international solidarity and boycott campaigns. When addressing seemingly intractable conflicts such as the decades-long Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation, Western liberals are fond of lamenting the lack of a so-called Nelson Mandela figure who could unite divided populations and galvanize world opinion behind a peaceful and dignified demand for national self-determination. Not only does this wholesome and incredibly racist narrative ignore the fact that Mandela himself was an active proponent of armed struggle. There are many people who feel that it is useless and futile for us to continue talking peace and non-violence against a government whose reply is only savage attacks. But it also hides the essential role that militant youth movements played in toppling the apartheid regime and the important role the struggles around education played in this process. One of the catalyzing events that marked a turning point in the struggle against apartheid took place on June 16, 1976, when 10,000 high school students marched in Soweto to protest the forced introduction of Afrikaner language into their school curriculum. The state's response was to open fire on the crowd of children, killing at least 176 and wounding over a thousand. In the wake of this tragedy, many youth joined the armed wing of the African National Congress, or ANC, who eventually assumed power following open elections in 1994. Yet the rosy picture of post-apartheid South Africa also ignores the reality that despite more than two decades of ANC rule, the country still possesses the highest rates of inequality in the world, with an overwhelming majority of the nation's wealth remaining in the hands of white settlers. In 2015, a struggle began to take shape, demanding a long overdue reckoning of the country's colonial legacy.
beginning with a symbolic protest at the University of Cape Town against the statue of South Africa's colonial founder, Cecil B. Rhodes. The movement quickly spread across the country and has since taken up militant calls for free, decolonized education. The university struggle and the university space is a microcosm of the struggle and the problems within broader society. And so the struggles that we have at the university, whether it be economic issues around fees, the political issues around liberation and justice, etc., that feed into the broader discussion about where we are as a country in South Africa post-1994. And I would say we currently exist in a post-apartheid apartheid South Africa where there's many continued injustices and we still are fighting for liberation and equality. The statue at the University of Cape Town, one of Africa's top academic institutions, has been covered up for the past few weeks as both white and black students regularly marched past with the hashtag Roads Must Fall placards calling for its removal. Prior to 2015, there's been a lot of talk around how young people in South Africa are, are apathetic, apolitical, they're unengaged citizens, etc. All of those things. Because of the history that young people have played in South Africa, like 1976 and the youth movements of 1968, SASO and the Black Consciousness Movement, but largely to be headed by young people. In a historical sense, there's this, I guess, historic role or obligation in some sense, or duty that young people have played in shaping the national destiny of South African politics. And so after 1984, there was a very sharp decline uh, of youth participation in critiquing government policies, in critiquing you know, the neoliberal settlements against colonialism, against undoing all of those historic injustices of the past. So the significance of Fortnite was that it re-energized that, that aspect of youth involvement. So Roadmaster 4 was a decolonial student movement that formed at the beginning of 2015 in response to structural and institutional racism at the university and in society and structural and institutional patriarchy and just general inequality that black students, workers and staff were facing at the university. It's based on three pillars, um, ideological pillars of black consciousness, um, black radical feminism through intersectionality and pan-Africanism. 2015 was a campaign to remove the statue of the Sudan Road, which was located here on campus. So that's sparked, it was like a catalyst, the symbolic act of the, of the fall of the statue. Uh, I think that's where one can begin to trace ideas of what of what fallism is. The relationship between roads must fall and fees must fall. I think one must understand roads must fall as a, as a catalytic moment, and then fees must fall as a subsequent action of, of that initial event that happened. I think fallism applies broadly as a, an arsenal of, or a canon of protest tactics in the sense of disruptions, shutdowns, occupations. Those were some of the defining features of, of protest movements in 2015 and early 2016, which came to characterize fallism, disrupting the space so that you can highlight some of the injustices which exist 
but not only around specific occasions, but as a daily thing. Road Must Fall and then Fees Must Fall was organised as a non-partisan student movement on a flat structure where there was no, you know, recognised leadership because I think one of the issues that we had had in previous, you know, organisations and, and organising was that the kind of hierarchical structure didn't always work and it caused a lot of factionalism and, you know, party politics. What would happen was that the organisation was basically set up to coordinate different tasks. The public in particular was very uh, curious about how the movement is organised because of this question of who do you hold accountable. Initially, it was a tactic, especially in the early days of the movement, to say we don't have any leaders so that if you want to victimise someone in particular, it'll be harder for the authorities to do that. From my thinking, it was both a strategic and ideological decision. We wanted to avoid the pitfall of having like one or two iconic leaders and then you know uh, everything kind of like is hinged on, around them. So we can say we are a flat structure trying to embody this ideal democratic structure of participation where everyone's voices could be coveted and people's politics are given equal room to be expressed in the space. The idea of you know Mandela's rainbowism and um, this rainbow nation mythology that exists where you know we are all kumbaya hold hands we are one type of thing does not exist and the truth and reconciliation commission that existed in this country didn't do anything to really solve the material reasons for why there is this inequality and deep-seated anger and hurt and pain caused by colonialism and apartheid Looking for trouble? State education systems, and particularly colleges and universities, play a vital role in the reproduction of social control. Not only are they the physical sites where millions of future workers are trained to participate in the capitalist economy generally, but increasingly these institutions serve as corporate incubators, providing cheap labor and cutting-edge research and development facilities for the IT, nanotech, genetics, engineering, extraction and weapons manufacturing industries. As a result, students occupy a uniquely strategic choke point in the maintenance and development of the global economy. But beyond their potential utility as atomized cogs in the capitalist machine, when students come together around shared demands, they can also serve as a catalyzing spark for broader movements seeking wide-ranging social change. Youth movements can inject a well-needed shot of idealism, dynamism, and militancy into more long-standing and complacent social movements that may otherwise remain focused on defending past gains and reliant on outdated tactics and strategies. Before a new world can be built, the old one must be torn down. The student movement of 2009 was so significant for me personally. Prior to this movement, I wasn't really an anarchist or even politically active. So this movement really was something that radicalized me. For many students, the student movement was not only about the socioeconomic conditions they were confronting, but also about the possibilities of a different kind of future. So there was a positive vision behind this movement as well. Because of students and young people, there's like a lot of growing and growth that still needs to happen with the student. Finding yourself whatever. That becomes even more accentuated in, in that space, which often tends to be like a very tense, emotionally charged space. 
understand that some radicals may view students with a bit of suspicion. While students occupy an ambiguous social position since the university maintains and reproduces the division of intellectual and manual work, I think it's still important for radicals to maintain a presence on campuses in some kind of way. Whether it's through more postering campaigns or tabling literature or setting up events that explicitly address alternatives to capitalism, there needs to be some sort of continuous invisible presence on campuses that are able to make uh, counter messages clear. In addition to having organizing spaces that are specifically for anarchists and anti-authoritarians, we really need to work in coalition with other uh, members of the student body, faculty and staff, ultimately to gain widespread support. We need to learn how to work and mobilize within our communities and how to build consistently throughout the year so that we're not just protesting at a particular time of the year but that we're consistently working and building the movement. I think popular education was, was significantly underemphasized in the movement space, and especially over the last few years, it has led to a significantly impoverished articulation of what the demands are. It would be nice to, to build character which can withstand some of those trappings and pitfalls in particular, which tend to see movements disintegrating. I think that's why you just tend to always be consistent to answer what it is you're committing yourself to. I believe that the occupations carried out in the student movement really expanded the vocabulary of what is possible and in terms of direct action. And now uh, direct action tactics are actually much more accepted on university campuses than they once were. And this happened as a gradual process, but I believe that the students and faculty and staff really did see the value in taking action themselves. I know that there is risk involved, but you never gain anything without a little bit of sacrifice. The UC campuses have continued with the legacy of militant direct action. The recent confrontations with Milo and the alt-right are definitely a part of this legacy. Some of the tactics that we used to deploy, some of those tactics ended up becoming silencing tactics of people in the movement itself. And there was a point where you couldn't critique. I think you have to learn when you face the government and when you don't. You have to learn that because they broke us. O sea, yo sí creo que la ruptura pasó en una lógica de Estado de decir los desgastes con los movimientos sociales. O sea, el, la cooptación no funcionó, no funcionó o funcionó después, la represión tampoco, el apoyo, pero vamos a desgastarlos. When the state and the university becomes increasingly authoritarian and repressive, we said, instead of looking out at what the issues are that are causing these things, we look inward. And so I, I would say that too much of an inward focus can really make the movement very small and very difficult. We need to set out a vision that's able to speak to what the society is unable to provide and not just be against some issue or another. Si realmente como estudiante, como una persona que has recibido una formación universitaria, quieres realizar cambios sociales, políticos, hay que hacerlo en concreto. Llevar tu conocimiento activarte con otras personas para generar proyectos productivos, proyectos educativos que vayan mejorando las condiciones de las personas, aunque sea en escala muy pequeña, pero que sea algo real, algo concreto y no tan abstracto como esto de generar un movimiento 
masivo de grandes masas que va a derrocar a un régimen. We need to give support to other countries. The world is not focusing on the narrative is just around what's happening in the United States of America when there are many struggles across the world that we need to focus on and need to learn from. And so what I would encourage is that we meet um, as young people, as students from these student movements so that we can organize together and build together because that's the only way we're going to defeat a white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal and ableist system. While students have historically served as active participants in broader struggles for social change, it's important to remember that there's nothing inherently revolutionary about them. University campuses can just as easily serve as the breeding grounds for fascism and other toxic forms of political reaction. This threat is particularly acute today from campuses across the United States where alt-right and white nationalist groups are aggressively targeting students for recruitment and indoctrination. To those in China, where organized student groups form an important bulwark of an emergent hypernationalist state ethos. These spaces are contested territories, meaning that revolutionaries need to actively engage and organize with their peers in order to build movements capable of waging effective resistance. So at this point, we'd like to remind you that trouble is intended to be watched in groups and to be used as a resource to promote discussion and collective organizing. Are you a student that's interested in carrying out revolutionary anti-capitalist organizing in your university or college campus, or even in your high school? Consider getting together with some comrades, organizing a screening of this film, and discussing a strategy for where you might get started. Interested in running regular screenings of Trouble at your campus, info shop, community center, or even just at home with friends? Become a troublemaker. For 10 bucks a month, we'll hook you up with an advanced copy of the show, and a screening kit featuring additional resources and some questions you can use to get a discussion going. If you can't afford to support us financially, no worries. You can stream and or download all our content for free off our website, sub.media slash trouble. If you've got any suggestions for show topics or just want to get in touch, drop us a line at trouble at sub.media. In case you missed it, we're pleased to announce the return of The Stimulator with his brand new show, The Fucking News. If you haven't checked out his pilot episode, you can find it on our website, along with past episodes of It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine at sub.media slash stimulator. This episode would not have been possible without the generous support of Jose, Simon, Tani, and Chloe. Now get out there and make some trouble. Grandpa Woods made the walk and talk.